Hello and welcome to the Wavemakers podcast. I'm your host, Tamara Khan. Grateful to you for tuning in and to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for housing the show. Hope you're enjoying it and we'll tell others about it. And if you're not, feel free to get in touch and tell me why. Find me on LinkedIn or on Instagram at Lady Blue Tech. Meanwhile, after last episode of speaking with Sai Katara of Headlight, I've been pretty hooked on understanding more about infrastructure, especially coastal and ocean in particular infrastructure. There's also, of course, been this recent bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. And I really strive to know and understand more about the implications of this bill, particularly on ocean. Like many things, I think that we don't pay that much attention to things until we lose them maybe in a natural disaster, and infrastructure definitely falls under that category. So I really wanted to kind of talk a little more about what the basics of infrastructure are, what we don't really see and notice and talk about in general. And today's guest is Michael Penfield. Michael's consulting company, Stradivarius, is a multidisciplinary firm based in Miami, Florida. So I've had the pleasure of meeting Michael in Miami through my work with the Seaworthy Collective, also based in Miami. He specializes in business development and management consulting. Though I use that word kind of tentatively because like many of our wave makers, you'll see he's got a broad set of capabilities. Michael, I'm so happy to have you here on the show and I can't wait to, to get started and get some knowledge from you. Happy to be here, yeah, appreciate it. Super, well, I always start on Wavemakers with hearing a little bit about you and your background and how you got here and why. So kind of your origin story. Tell me a little bit, a bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I come from a pretty interesting background. Um, got my start in business um, working in telecom uh, for a large telecommunications company um, out of New Jersey and uh, really learned the business development and strategy side of the business on the corporate side. So really started working in uh, global enterprise management, global development for Fortune 500 companies, um, telecom business development strategy, um, and things of that nature. So really kind of learned it uh, early on. Um, and then that kind of led me to uh, understanding different verticals of business development from strategy and from those sides of, of things. Um, originally from New York, but that led me here to South Florida, where um, at the time, the, the company I was working for um, moved me here to work on a division of the company that specialized in machine-to-machine -machine telemetry. And then that uh, portion of the company was absorbed by a um, company that was a partner of the original company. And then they sold that part of the business off. And that's kind of how I got my start in the management consulting world. Wow, you're a perfect person to talk on a podcast that usually talks with startup founders and ocean innovators who are looking for that exact kind of strategy and how they, they bust into this ecosystem in general. So yeah, really excited to have your insights today. Um, I know from talking to you that you've done a lot of work across a spectrum of, of businesses 
Um, one of my favorites, of course, being in the sporting industry, but also with FEMA and government infrastructure projects and, and resilience. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Tell me a little bit like if you could go into kind of what are the critical infrastructures that you deal with and which ones pertain the most to ocean and, and water coasts? Sure. Yeah. So a lot of um, you mentioned it kind of in your in your outset. Uh, we don't think about infrastructure until we think about infrastructure. So uh, when we go over a bridge or we cross a dam or we uh, use healthcare systems or roads, uh, we, we really don't think about our infrastructure until we actually intentionally think about it. And so uh, essentially there are 16 uh, critical infrastructure sectors that are in place. And basically these infrastructures be, be it from chemicals to healthcare, to water, to energy, to defense, uh, you name it. Um, these are considered assets that are so vital or valuable uh, vital to the U.S. that if they were incapacitated or destroyed, it would debilitate the the government. It would debilitate uh, national economic security, um, public health, safety, or some combination of those things. That's crazy to me. I have to say, like, we don't take any notice of it, but it's that critical that it would shut us down without it. So, Correct. Yeah. And so, so what happens is, is, um, these things become the backbone of what we use here in society. Um, and the government basically has identified them as such that they need to have strategies attached to them. Um, and so that's kind of put me in a position working um, where learning how they work together, they're complementary, but very different as well at the same time. Um, has been uh, been interesting. So did some work for FEMA um, on the the public assistance strategy and implementation side of things. Um, kind of learned how these things tie to homeland security, hazard mitigation, uh, program management, programmatic direction, that kind of thing. So that's kind of how the the story sets itself up, and then kind of how it relates to uh, to those things. But essentially, sixteen critical infrastructures. Okay. You mentioned public assistance. Um, what, what do you mean by that? I, I really like to tap into how these kind of things affect listeners and the public at large. So, Yeah, so public assistance is not a, it's not a term that's used uh, very broadly. Um, it's, it's one that <clears throat> is um, when you hear it, you say, well, what is public assistance like you asked? Uh, so public assistance is basically uh, when a disaster occurs or pre-disaster design implementation, the government has a grant that's allocated for municipalities that those municipalities wow. use public funding to fund infrastructure projects. So um, after a disaster, whether that's debris removal, emergency preparedness, um, dams, roads, bridges, stormwater systems, things of that nature. Uh, there is dollars that are allocated for the improvement of these things post-disaster, but also grants for hazard mitigation for pre-disaster design, construction, and mitigatory purposes to prevent 
or mitigate disasters that might come. Um, and so the government provides a cost share for these kinds of things uh, for the municipalities to use money and then be reimbursed as a cost share for part of that particular sector. Michael, that is, you've already started in on what I was hoping to talk about a little bit because these things are, you know, we're already participating in infrastructure without even realizing it. Um, I assume a lot of that's tax dollars. <laughs> um, and I think maybe even those of us in the blue tech space, when you think about infrastructure, you can think about underwater cables that connect um, telecoms under the oceans and even uh, things like uh, I've had a gentleman named Yi Chow from a company called SeaTrek on my early shows, early episode. Um, and he was talking about the his system that powers floating sensors in the ocean. Uh, super fascinating how he's managed to come up with that and get it funded a lot through government grants. And I think, a you know, you don't connect those dots, but those floats and sensors are monitoring things like dispersions of pollutants or larvae or and then other other sensors including his are monitoring ocean atmospheric flux and weather and when these natural disasters might strike so i i like the idea of how everything is intertwined and you have to think of a strategy as you implement the infrastructure to support even these new innovations so um i guess that might lead me to another question for you is if these uh, grants and such exist from the government, um, are you seeing some innovative ideas for infrastructure? So I want to address that in, in a couple of ways, uh, because what happens is um, the government understands that um, it's, how can I say this? It's it's one of those things that they understand there is a need for innovation. So we when we when we think of innovation, we think of policy, and policy and innovation may not seem like they they are things that work hand in hand together, uh, but they they are necessary, right? So innovation drives policy, but policy regulates innovation or helps it to have guidance yeah. or scope or operability. And so the government is, is interested in innovation if it helps accelerate some of the goals that they have as far as um, making sure that they can accomplish certain objectives when it comes to what it is that they need. And so one of those, one of those things is um, as part of the strategic planning that takes place, they understand the need for innovation. They understand that because government is more regulatory and and uh, reactive when it comes to event planning, innovation drives some of the things that are their goals as far as being proactive. Um, I want to also address on another note, to your point, there is very much an environmental protection portion to critical infrastructure development and public assistance uh, directives. And that's because most of the directives that are in place for development directly impact environment. For example, 
there is a historical preservation aspect to it as well. So if work is taking place in a floodplain or areas where there may be uh, prehistoric um, fossils or things of that nature, the government tries to implement uh, protective elements to make sure that those things can take place in a proper manner. Um, and so that involves obviously ocean, that involves uh, other things that, that are, are pieces of the components of this, this machine, if you will. Um, and so I think there still is a balance that takes place because there is a need for innovation, policy, and then taking into account the environmental protective aspect of it also. I certainly appreciate you bringing up that element. I, I know even in my work in the oil industry, we, we had environmental boundaries where you couldn't, um, you couldn't abuse the ocean floor. There were certain areas that were archeology span sites and um, protected areas. Thankfully, there's a lot more marine protected areas these days. And they, they really try and make sure that infrastructure that's put in place protects those. And I can see that being something as, they, as we get into wind energy offshore and, and other new innovations that will require more infrastructure off in the ocean. So great, great point. Can you see any barriers that sort of hinder the advancement of these, you know, the, the hazards, hazard mitigations you mentioned? Um, what, what do you see most as, as stopping the implementation or how best can, can the government sort of implement the funds that they're, they're allocating? Yeah, I think I think that's a really great point because um, there are a lot of barriers to to entry, if you will. That's kind of the term: barriers to entry, barriers to um, a- adoption, if you will. Um, and and one of those is public awareness. So obviously, a lot of these these projects are funded by public dollars, and so the public in general and at large. If, if we're not um, educated, will not understand the, the solutions that are trying to be implemented. So um, there's a need for public awareness. There's a need for um, an understanding of communication. So a lot of times, you know, we know the term citizen science. We're all not biologists or, um, you know, chemists or physicists, but um, to, to a general and overall degree, we all are citizen scientists. And so we, we have to have an understanding from a, I would, I use the term in, in my work, uh, a culturalization of what is going on around us, um, you know, to, to understand, yeah, the things that affect us, uh, critical infrastructure, climate change, blue tech, these things are, are not limited to just the scientists and the professionals in their fields. All of us that are aware of a problem have a, have a call to action responsibility. We, we use a term sometimes in speaking engagements or in consulting engagements. I use the term everybody, everyone, everybody in some form or fashion. Uh, either, either one of those terms, everyone is a first responder. 
everyone's a first responder. So we're not, it's not limited to a police or an ambulance or a firefighter. Everyone is a first responder. And, and if we, we really drill down into the culturalization of those things, then it makes what we're trying to accomplish more impactful because we all understand there's a role that we each play. Um, but there are major barriers to entry. There are also political barriers to entry. There, um, there are policy barriers to entry that you know certain policies or procedures are not designed to allow for some innovations. So holistically, there there are there are things that could potentially be barriers to entry when it comes to adoption or implementation of technologies. Um, be that from awareness to policy to funding, even funding may be an issue at times. Uh, sometimes, you know, the public sector wants the private sector to pay for it. Um, private sector is a, a driver for policy change, but the public sector policy also has to be adoptive and inclusive enough for those technologies and innovations to exist and then be sustainable enough to, to have actionable um, insights for the long term. I really want to circle back, I think, to the public awareness for starters. And Michael, I can already tell you're going to be a recurring guest on the show to sort of break things down for us as we go. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was a lot to unpack. I I, I, I threw a lot in there. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I, I knew you had a broad um, resume. So... Uh, yeah, the, the public awareness side, maybe we start there because I hear so often from friends, particularly in different industries, you know, not so in my ocean bubble, I guess, um, just that, you know, we're always hearing about climate change is the greatest challenge facing humanity today. And it's a, it's, you know, a huge challenge, a huge hazard, and we're all in big trouble. But I think the feeling is, they don't understand fully why or what can be done about it. So just to empower people to understand a little bit more like the everyday things that affect them is a super important piece. Um, do you know if any of the, say the funding allocated in this IRA bill is going towards that kind of effort? I know that NOAA, for instance, was allocated somewhere around $550 million. So I know they do outreach, but uh, maybe you know of some other things. Yeah, so, so it's interesting because in general, the understanding is that infrastructure today is not equipped for the disasters and the the circumstances such as climate change that is for today. So a large part of the country's infrastructure, and this is this is not just a I'll shed a little light on this tomorrow and it might be interesting. This is not limited to domestic policy. In general, the global infrastructure for this world today is not equipped for the global disasters of today. Sure. We're seeing that in Europe, even with their heat waves. So Correct. 
Uh, we see that in Pakistan. We see that in the UAE. Um, I, I read an article today about how the UAE has to actually do cloud seeding now because there is not enough. They get three inches of rainfall in a year. It's, it's, it is the driest place on the planet. Um, our infrastructure for today is not equipped for the disasters and circumstances of climate for today. Um, you saw that in New Orleans, you know, the levees are, you know, 70 years old, 80 years old. They're not equipped for the inundation, the storm surge, the types of disasters that are taking place today. Um, in general, disasters are more frequent, more complex, more intense, and more impactful. There's a difference, obviously, between impact and effect. So effect and impact are two, people say, well, the effect of a disaster and the impact of a disaster. They're two different things. We can get into that in a separate, <laughs> separate topic, but understanding the difference between those things is what will help people to be innovative. In a broader sense, this Inflation Reduction Act um, is divided into essentially three different parts. So there is a, a <coughs> excuse me, a portion that addresses um, infrastructure needs and reducing contributions to climate change's destructive effects. Um, that 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 portion is directly to address that. It's, I believe it's called the AJP, which is the American Jobs Plan. Um, and so that's something that will be interesting to understand what what is that? Because some some feel, and again, I'm I, I, I'm not a I understand the role of politics in this while myself not being a, a huge political person. Um, some people think there can be too aggressive of a transition into some of these technologies or clean energies um, because of the length, the time it would take to get there. And so that causes them to say, well, we shouldn't make any moves or any kind of directives toward that. And that also can be a, a, a bit of a bottleneck, if you will, at times. But understanding there is a need to transition into these technologies will be helpful long-term. Uh, it's just a matter of how does, how does that affect uh, long-term in that, in that sense. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but government is incentivizing public from a municipal standpoint and the private sector to help these innovations by tax offsets or by increased cost shares for these kinds of things if 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 you have enough willingness to transition it even regenerative ag or other things like that fascinating okay uh-oh you mentioned regenerative ag you want to just talk for a moment about what it is yeah so obviously uh, regenerative excuse me regenerative agriculture um this idea of carbon neutrality or carbon offsetting, uh, carbon credits, things of that nature. Um, there are ways, I actually wrote a, a paper on funding the transition to regenerative agriculture um, that could be used again for, for innovation. But again, innovation is going to drive policy because policy is designed to regulate things that drive policy. So 
long term, there is a need for innovation to kind of suggest or create momentum towards this 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 regenerative trend. Um, and so agriculture is a big space, food security. It's obviously one of our critical infrastructure components. Uh, we have a food security issue in, in general globally, but also in the United States where um, there are certain risk factors and risk development that needs to happen in these spaces. And food and ag is a, is a very big one here. I think that's a great example of, of the relevance to uh, just about everyone. Um, who needs clean water and food. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned that momentum to the transition. And I think that to me ties in with your public awareness message that if people understand, then they can support things that will be helpful ultimately to them. That includes understanding the policies that are in place or that need to change and supporting policymakers in doing so. So something I wasn't, I wasn't a very big political person growing up either. And it's become more and more clear to me just how much you have to play an active role in, in policy in the U S. So appreciate you mentioning that. I think you've touched a lot upon sort of where people can get involved and and pay more attention and help. And I was wondering if you had any advice to innovators themselves um, about how to address these barriers and maybe be solving the right problems that the government wants to address or needs to address. Any any advice on how to focus on that and then get their innovation adopted? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say, you know, keep being innovative. There, you, you can't have enough in, innovation when it comes to, you know, the, these issues, you know, advice that I, that I've, you know, given, you know, I'm happy to provide is, you know, simple solutions to complex problems. So we don't need more complex solutions to what are already complex problems. It can be very, very simple things. Because the more simpler it is, the, the, the less hurdles you have to go through when it comes to adoption um, and whatever that whatever that means. I mean, I can go into a, you know great detail there, but if you can solve a complex problem with a simple solution, that's always going to be um, easier than making <laughs> quite quite frankly, a more complex solution to a complex problem because the problem is already has layers of complexity built into it. If the solution is simple, very straightforward, then it allows it allows for less barrier to adoption. I think also learn from the, the mistakes of others. Um, in, in, in my industry and in our field, we talk about a lot uh, about lessons learned, best practices. So if you see you know, your peers or others that have made mistakes, find the best practices that you can make for the failings or, or lessons learned that others maybe didn't do things the right way. That will also give you some guidance there. But, <clears throat> you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, if, we can, if we can find simple solutions to these complex issues, 
and learn from the mistakes of others, um, then that 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 can be a, a big help to I think continuing to adopt. And the last thing I would say is teamwork. You know, collaboration is. I, I think we we tend to underestimate that, but collaboration is the most powerful tool. The power of network. The power of finding solutions that are ecosystem centric, that are part of what can solve problems, I think are, are huge. And sometimes in the entrepreneur spirit, that can be ignored or overlooked. Um, but I think if, if we can find ways to collaborate and team together, then you know the strength is in collaboration. Right. The power in collaboration cannot be underestimated or or undervalued. And I think if, if we can see that a lot more clear, it will make the landscape a lot more um, easier to, to navigate. And great point. And I know you mean it because I've worked with you before and and all in collaborative efforts. Michael's very generous with his time. Um, that power of the network and, and just the teamwork um, perspective is something that I see from almost everyone that I've spoken to and, and brought on this show, the innovators, the entrepreneurs that I talk to, whether it's developing something for the fishing industry and working closely with the fishermen themselves, or maybe just, uh, someone, creating something out of plastic and really working with those who are using the plastic and need it made into something else. It's, it's finding those people and networking. And I love that, that aspect, I think of entrepreneurship is the collaboration and teamwork and you really can't be a successful startup without it. So. No, and, and you, you have to be, you know, open-minded as well, Tamara, as you know. I mean, it's sometimes it can be easy to um, not be a little closed-minded or, or, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally closed-minded because we tend to just see our, our one point of view or our one solution as, as agnostic, whereas if we're a little more broader – in application, we may have some success. You know, I think that that could circle right back into paying attention to your surroundings, understanding the infrastructure and the the way it affects you, being open-minded and not just sort of living in your own silo helps understand the world and accomplish more. So, yeah, and, and I think that also speaks to uh, to your point. I mean, I we we haven't touched on this as well, but I'm I I do a very, uh, quite a significant number, of, much of my work is in sports. And, and a lot of people say, well, well, how does sports tie in? Well, I would challenge and say, well, how doesn't it, right? Because we, we lived in a world, you know, 10, 20 years ago where sports was its own sector, art was its own sector, music was its own sector, culture was its own sector. And as the problems of society continue to increase, those walls come down and now everyone is impacted from your athlete to your uh, public works professional to your, uh, you know, CFO, C-level executive at a company to the small business owner, to the citizen, to the astronaut. So 
everyone, regardless of sector or, um, you know, vertical is affected by what's, what's happening. So, um, sport is a huge, a huge portion of that. And, uh, it's, it's a space that I, that I've touched in for some time, but art, sport, culture, me, all these different things now intersect in a way that requires collaboration and requires open uh, understanding of how to, how to work together. So again, having a broader picture that, that instead of being micro, more of a macro um, approach has been, uh, been something that's, that's helpful as well. Fantastic. I think uh, in a lot of ways, you're right. The cl- climate change is a great equalizer. So um, having more people addressing what's going on is obviously better for the whole. A rising tide lifts lifts all ships, they say. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Wonderful. Well, my takeaway today, Michael, is certainly going to be simple solutions to complex problems. Um, I, I really think that's applicable all over the place. And and thank you for offering your insights on, on infrastructure. I hope to have you back very soon to dive a little further into the bill, maybe talk a little more about that crossover between sports and uh, and even climate change. Um, happy to share. A lot, lot going on in that space. A lot going on. Uh, happy to share. Happy to collaborate, share any, anything I can do to, to help or provide insight is uh, it, that's, that's, I'm happy to do it. So I'm here. Thank you. Um, and thank you to our listeners um, as well as the American Shoreline Podcast Network for producing the show. As always, reach out to me on Instagram at Lady Blue Tech or let me know if you're interested in sponsoring the show or know of any other innovative ocean technologies that are making some waves. We'll be back with startups next time on the Wavemakers podcast. Thank you. Thank you.